You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I was verily holding my breath in my hands. So wrote Daniel Child, Minuteman of Lincoln, Massachusetts, who fought in the Concord fight with his brother, his kin, and his neighbors. Child was hiding behind a rock with musket fire whisking by him from all sides. He had sought the rock after literally running between musket balls to get to a safe place. Child, who was in the business of harassing the king's troops today as they moved from Concord back to Boston, giving him an old Yankee welcome that they'd remember, along what would be a bloody road, found himself literally caught between a group of British troops marching down the road and a group of flankers. Smaller detachments sent out by the main body to keep people like him away. He was between these two groups. And for a second, what must have been an adrenaline-fueled second, he was on the safest place on earth. Neither of the British troops could fire at him because they were too close to each other. They would hit each other. But as you can imagine, it's not like Daniel Child could just stay there forever. The flankers would go away, or there would be a cease on one side, or somebody would call out, don't shoot, and his safety bubble would be gone. He'd be destroyed in a rain of musket fire. He had to dart out, making his run between the two units, and a lucky discovery of a rock. And after a time, as the troops had to leave him and march forward, he no longer became a priority of His Majesty's troops. William Thorning was in the same battle, being chased by British flankers, when he jumped into a shallow trench in the ground. Then, as they ran past him, he hopped up from the trench and shot two of them. Samuel Whitmore was 78 years old and had fought in three wars for the king and numerous Indian battles in Massachusetts. But this time, He was fighting the king's soldiers. He was in his fields when he spotted an approaching British column. He knew that there were British forces in Concord. This was the relief force sent to help the Redcoats retreating from Concord. And he, even at his age, was going to do what he can to delay them. Whitmore loaded his musket, and this old man ambushed them from behind a nearby stone wall, killing one soldier. His musket shot spent. He then drew his dueling pistols killed a second grenadier, and wounded another. He would not get a third shot as British troops reached him. He's not done. Whitmore pulls out his sword and attacks. In this attempt, he would not get far. He was subsequently shot in the face, bayoneted numerous times, and left by British troops who thought he would die there. Indeed, often romanticized, Concord was a serious, deadly day of fighting. 
But they were wrong about Whitmore dying there. He would be fouled by colonial troops, and he would live for 18 more years. In his example, I think you get a sense of how colonials felt. I was asked once, once the, what was the Revolutionary War like? <laughs> I can't answer that. I was there, but you do what you can to piece together different accounts. I got a great account called Embattled Farmers by Richard C. Wiggins, where he puts together the minute, the stories of the Minutemen from Lincoln, Massachusetts, which is a town that's wedged between Concord, Acton, and some others, and where it began. It was plowshares beat into swords, as that statue from Daniel Chester French, with a man in his hunting shirt, his hat, holding a plowshare and holding a musket, so artfully depicts. New England farm country, home of kinfolk and in-laws, neighbors for generations, lots of people related to each other, by the way. Now, the countryside on fire, everyone armed, at war. Rifles and hunting shirts, whizzing protect projectiles, sulfur, horse hoofs, fife and drum. Barns on fire, shouts to weary troops, lack of clear lines of sight, sometimes lack of clear orders. Confusion, hearts racing, exhausted legs and worn-out shoes. A day everyone knew was historic and they would remember. The day when what they considered a foreign invading force, despite the technicality of living in the British Empire, an illegal force, unlawfully trespassing, thwarting their provincial authority and charter rights. Long discussed in the abstract, long prepared for shouted at rallies, etched in proclamations. The threat was now here, at home, very red and very real. This podcast is on the battles of Lexington and Concord, with more attention to the more active battle of Concord. How could not knowing about the battles of Lexington and Concord hurt you? Hurt your understanding, perhaps, of history in America? Because you might ask, what does this have to do with beating up politics this episode? And to some degree, this is the July 4th holiday, and it's some interesting history. But also, I think... There are some need-to-know things about the American Revolution. As I approach my 15th year in podcasting, I have a wide audience with a range of political beliefs. I'm not here to change them. I am here to try to bridge understanding, to provide perspective, elevate the debate, maybe not change your opinion, but to be sure that you have the full context. And I think in the American Revolution, there could be some useful bridges between different points in politics. I also think there's some misunderstandings about what is essentially America's origin story. Start with something interesting. What we're describing today is April 1775. 
1776. Your historical knowledge may be hurt by hearing silly things like about a third and a third and a third, a misquote of John Adams that is purported to indicate that only a third of people supported the American Revolution. Not in Fortress New England. Not in the towns of the Minutemen that we're going to describe. Not in occupied Boston. You may hear that Americans never took British troops head on. Concord proves that wrong. You may hear Americans were always outnumbered. Concord proves that wrong. You may hear they were horribly trained. Concord proves that wrong. These were some of the best trained, best shots in North America. You may hear that the revolution was fought by a bunch of rich people to serve a bunch of rich people. Concord proves that wrong. We'll talk about the people who fought in Concord. And none of what I'm talking today is to be anti-British, particularly not modern Britons. And there's a fine country and many British people live in America now. It is worthy of celebration that there was to be a potentially oppressive British force on this day, and it was resisted. It's a battle of a local population against a potentially oppressive force, and that overall fight is buried today, I believe, in the psychology of American politics. We can imagine the emotions. Pride. Jaduthine Bemis was proud to have killed a redcoat on that day. He talked about it for the rest of his life. Ephraim Flint doesn't kill a redcoat, he captures him. Oddly enough, the redcoat, poorly paid in the army, defected and took work from Flint as a farmhand. Ambivalence. James Nichols. A recent arrival from England, got his first glimpse of redcoats, goes over, talks to them, and then goes home and stays out of the fight. Curiosity. Daniel Brooks, just 10 years old, went sneaking through the woods when the fighting broke out to get as close as he can to the action. He'd been warned by his parents not to do it, but he did. He'd sign up for the army six years later. And redemption. Phineas Allen and Solomon Whitney were landless, and Whitney was on town welfare. Abner Martin had been warned out of town by the officials for being an indigent and a pest. Today, all three of them were soldiers, and perhaps the outbreak of war was a lucky break, because they are going to be paid for some years to come. The gravity of what was going on aside, Concord and Lexington were not a surprise. They should not have been. There was intelligence that the British were coming for days. The area was armed, on alert, ready, with preparations that had been conducted for years. The first colonial militia gathered in the moonlight as planned to protect the arms stash at Concord. The British were in Boston, and they knew they were coming. The militia arrives according to plan from several towns to protect Concord, their neighbors. And they arrive well ahead of the British regulars, but not in enough numbers. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. 
No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. They know the British are coming as a result of that famous alarm from Paul Revere, but also so many others. The British capture Revere and send him back to Boston. There's so many other messengers. They know Gage is sending, the British General Gage is sending a force to take their arms at Concord and their ammunition. In the center of town, protecting Concord, they hear that the British regulars have been in Lexington, have shot at Americans, and are heading their direction. They send out their scouts to see where the Redcoats are. And find that indeed, they are on the main road, marching in order with fife and drum and heading towards them. There's a moment of pause as officers debate. The red uniforms are visualized. This is really the king's troop, really here in our land. They are armed and we are armed. And there's probably a thought. Do you really want to do this? Mobilizing is one thing. Making a stand is another. Launching an attack, when not yet attacked, is far another. The Minutemen hesitate. Though the plans to mobilize have been in place for years, really. The, the, the idea of a British force moves, moving in with no authority from the colony is the same as if they were attacked by the French, the Spanish, or an Indian tribe in their opinion. Though the plans to mobilize were in place, the plan of what to do was not. So the first decision is to cede the town of Concord to the British force and lie in wait north of town, waiting for more numbers, for more militia to arrive. It's worthwhile to consider here that the British had back in 1774 captured the provincial gunpowder supply at Charlestown. People in the Massachusetts colony, the leaders, thought this was theirs. This was for their own protection. So they'd already demonstrated the British that they will take colonial supplies whenever they see fit. Locals were unhappy with this affront and determined not to let it happen again. I think this is an important point of Concord that's not often known. It's like, I think people know that the British went off to capture some American arms, but to for a moment, from the British point of view, it, it's worthwhile to consider what Massachusetts had actually done. They start in 1774 gathering supplies. Some are local crafted. Others are smuggled in from the West Indies, which means from all over the world, really. They had enough powder in Concord and various other areas. Enough musket balls, enough tents, axes, salted fish, dried beef, rum, very important, to support an army of 15,000 should one be needed. To put that in context, that is more than three times the British force in Boston. This is what the colonials are ready for. They scatter it throughout the countryside, but good concentrations in Concord, which is the seat of the provincial government outside of Boston, and it's home to the province's Congress. General Gage knows this stockpile is there. He has local spies, and 
he could sense the danger and decides for a late night strike to take out this supply. Gage sends out Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith to capture and destroy the supplies. He also wants him to capture rebel leaders, John Hancock and Sam Adams. They escape to Philadelphia, the toast of taverns, all the way. It's this secret quick strike attack, but the word spreads easily among hyper-alert provincials. One Boston man snaps at an officer that their soldiers will miss getting the cannon in Concord. A hint to the very surprised officer that Boston locals are well aware this secret attack is going on. It takes all night, it seems, to ferry the men from Boston to Charlestown, the British, to start their secret mission. And that's well more than enough time for 70 American militiamen to assemble to stop their passage at Lexington Green. Well, stop is the wrong word. As far as we know, only 40 assemble in line. Parker, their commander, insists that they parade only. In other words, they don't block the road at Lexington where the British are, you know, marching past. They just want a show of force to parade. And they do that in the town green. But the British troops do not wish to walk past disassembled militia force, risking that they will shoot them as they pass, you know, from behind. So they confront them on the green. Now, you know, accounts differ, of course, but the major accounts are that Parker says he orders his troops to disperse given this sudden approach. And according to most accounts, the British fire first and scatter the Lexington men. Seven men are killed. But if all that happened was Lexington, the events would lack a warlike quality. That's why I think Concord is where the American Revolution is first felt in my view, and where there's really a two-sided conflict. Through Lexington, on the way to Concord, the British meet no real resistance. They do notice many eyes on them. They notice, like, a little bit of flash here and there, a pot shot. They see armed men in the vicinity of the objective, but Lieutenant Colonel Francis has no hesitation. He enters Concord, the American militia there having left for north, and he smartly secures the north and south bridges on the edge of the town of Concord, which would prevent entry except from the east, where they're coming from, and presumably have secured. He does note an assemblage on the north of town, but leaves a force at that north bridge, and that begins the mission. His troops begin checking the various farmhouses in town for a sign of Adams or Hancock, and weapons, and they do find musket balls, gun cartridges, other supplies. They burn the cartridges in the town commons and dump the musket balls in the mill pond. This is Lieutenant Colonel Smith's official account from the British side. At Concord, we found very few inhabitants in the town. Those we met with both Major Pitcairn and myself took all possible pains to convince that we met them no injury, and that if they opened their doors when required to search for military stores, not the slightest mischief would be done. We had opportunities of convincing them our good intentions, but they were sulky, and one of them even struck Major Pitcairn. This was an early indication that the British had misinterpreted public opinion. 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Ephraim Jones refuses the Redcoats' entry into his family's tavern, where the door is barred shut. They bust in and force him at gunpoint to reveal where cannon are buried. British grenadiers then dig these up and make the cannon unusable. See, their view of the world and what they were doing on this operation could not be more different. The regulars are there as they see it to enforce order. Americans see them as intruders, as far into their charter rights as if they were French invaders, as we mentioned. And although the regulars get a whiff of the plans from detaining Paul Revere, their officers do, the British really do not get the sense that the countryside is as mobilized as it is. And watching their every move, the hills and brush are hiding men on the march, nearing Concord to confront them. First arrival Americans are still waiting, getting more resolute, and their ranks larger as the hours go on. They assemble ahead of that North Bridge. They see the British forts there. They're just out of musket fire range. Musket fire range is about a football field, I think. It's the best way for modern people to understand it, maybe 75 yards. Um, they're about that far away from the companies guarding the North Bridge. These assembled militias from Concord, Lincoln, Acton, and other towns can't see all that's going on. Tense moment. I mean, it's one thing to talk about arms. The town declared itself ready for war as early as 1773, two years before this event. But it's another to see the troops in the flesh, to have that moment where war with the mother country is starting. News travels slowly, but these militia do know that the same troops they are viewing will indeed kill them or lance them with bayonets. They just fired upon and scattered the Lexington militia. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th.
One of the militia commanders, a Captain William Smith of Lincoln, connected with the Adamses in Boston, wants to storm the bridge. Another captain, Isaac Davis, says, I'm not afraid to go, and I haven't a man that's afraid to go. It's overruled by others for now. And there's more waiting, which allows Francis Smith and the British regulars to do their work. But as they do, there's smoke rising above Concord that the militiamen can see. Now, we know now it's the fire from the burning of equipment, but it's not clear from the militiamen that houses, barns, people's homes are, are being burnt, city property, churches. You know, they, they have no idea. Minutemen scream at the officers. Will you let them burn the town down? They won't. Orders are given to march now towards the North Bridge to confront the British officer, the British force loaded. Maybe scatter the troops, get them moving away, but they are ordered to fire only if fired upon. As this colonial militia force, which now numbers the British garrison at the bridge five to one, as they move in, in military order that surprised the British towards the North Bridge, in defense of their charter rights, their liberties, their neighbors, their fellow colonials, the Redcoats, by accounts, fire a warning shot. The colonials keep moving. Then they fire a few more random shots, hoping to scatter the men and convince them no dice. Then the garrison makes a partial volley. And Isaac Davis, the brave captain from one of the towns, is dead. So is a Pfeiffer. The key officer leading the Legion now, a man by the name of Buttrick, now howls, For God's sakes, fire! They do. And there's a return volley from the British, then fire back and forth. The outnumbered British guarding the bridge retreat. Colonial militia cross it, but they don't enter Concord yet. They take a defensive position behind a stone wall. This is Colonel Smith's account from the point of view of his major. One of the bridges they marched down with very considerable body on the light infantry posted there. On their coming pretty near, one of our men fired on them, which they returned. On action ensued and some few were killed and wounded. In this affair, it appears that the bridge was quitted. They scalped and otherwise ill-treated one or two of the men who were either killed or severely wounded, being seen by a party that was marched by soon after. That account of the scalping is mixed. Some people say it was just that one of the Minutemen had a tomahawk and used it against an officer who was trying to very well cut him with a sword. Colonel Smith comes down now from the main town and appears with his British grenadiers. These are the more elite troops. But seeing the martial strength of the men and reasoning that his work is done, he halts. The militia are now beyond the North Bridge and they're taking refuge behind a small stone wall. These stone walls are very common in New England, usually dry, piled stones supported by their own weight, built proudly by farmers and townspeople to do something with stones from deforested land to civilize their lots like the stone walls they would know in England or Scotland or their forefathers would know and to delineate their farm land 
from the uncivilized woods. Tens of thousands of miles of stone in walls dotted New England at this time. A golden age of stone building. They are not that high. It was quite a bit of labor to make these walls. But today, the structure was a lifesaver. Neither side budges. And as the British inspect the American line, a Minuteman's account years later was that they could have killed the entire officer corps and scored many casualties. But from the American side, they had no orders to do that. Inspecting the troops, Smith decides not to further engage after the standoff, but simply moves past them. The American militia do not fire from the wall. Smith's troubles will be ahead of him on the retreat to Boston. The Americans pursue the British and ensure that their return trip to Boston will not be pleasant. Numbers are increased by late-arriving militia from towns all over the area now. They fire upon the British as they make their way down the road. Here's uh, Smith's account. On our leaving Concord to return to Boston, they began to fire on us from behind the walls, ditches, trees, etc., which, as we marched, increased to a very great degree and continued without the intermission of five minutes altogether for, I believe, upwards of 18 miles. So that I can't think that there must have been a preconcerted scheme in them to attack the king's troops, the first favorable opportunity that offered. Otherwise, I think they could not in so short a time as from our marching out have raised such a numerous body and for so great a space of ground. Well, he was right about that. There was a mobilization, and by the afternoon, literally thousands of colonial militia were in the area, completely outnumbering the British troops. Notwithstanding the enemy's numbers, Smith continues, they did not make one gallant effort during so long an action, though our men were so very much fatigued, but kept under cover. Another way to say that is they took advantage of the terrain they had and the knowledge of that terrain that they had. The British were also on the move. They didn't want to stay and fight. They were heading towards their home base in Boston. A frontal confrontation was not immediately desired from either side. This is where the British, between Concord and Cambridge, reach an area called the Cow Pasture, or the, the, which will be called the Bloody Angle. Cow Pasture is an area that has grazing for cows, and this is a time where Massachusetts is rural, and there's plenty of cows in the, in the Boston area. But it has enough trees. So it's not just grazing area. It has enough trees to give the cattle shade. For the British, this small patch in the road where the road angles with a big, long, open area and then trees for cover was a deadly combination. Pursuing militia who know the area, running down the road after the British, see Smith's force move down that road and anticipate that they're going to hit this area. They eschew the road and make it for the cover of trees. 
This bloody angle was horrible for the British, as they cannot use their flankers, the men on either side sent to take out people that might be shooting at them. They were being squeezed in by the road, and militiamen could fire at them from the trees, from both sides. Some 30 deaths on the British side occur here, only four on the American side. The British can't even stop to recover their dead. They make it out, but with so many injuries and their officers hurt too. And they've got another problem. Ammunition's running out. This was supposed to be a surprise night surgical strike. Not an all-out war in the countryside, which is what they're getting. Smith continues, There were few men that had any ammunition left, and so fatigued that we could not keep flanking parties out. So we must soon have laid down our arms. Think about that. How that must have felt. If this British party is captured leaving Boston... If they do not return, or if they have to return after surrenders and being sent out, the king's force, will the British send another patrol again? Could the American Revolution have ended right there, or at least the New England part of it? Here's how militia member Joseph Faxter recounts it. We pursued them and killed some, and when they got to Lexington, they were so fatigued that they must have soon surrendered, had not Lord Percy met them with a large reinforcement and two field pieces. The cannon missed, but such stories of their effects spread through our men that more went than pursued. A continual problem in the Revolutionary War is the psychology of the American people and those who had joined militias and if they would continue the fight. And that started in Concord and would last until Yorktown with ups and downs. The arrival of a force from Boston under Percy saved the British, no doubt. With a thousand fresh men, he relieves Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Smith. There are still 2,000 armed men now in the countryside sniping at them. And there's more fighting at Lexington and Monotony where people are fighting from their homes. But the British are able to escape, albeit with over 70 casualties. They do take 40 American during this fight. The Americans chase them all the way out. They surround Boston, and they will take a position outside of Boston, threatening it, which will set up the Battle of Bunker Hill later. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Word goes out to the colonies. Here's a dispatch that reaches Philadelphia in five days. To all friends of American liberty, be it known that this morning before the break of day, a brigade consisting of 1,000 or 1,200 men landed at Phipps Farm at Cambridge and marched to Lexington, where they found a company of our colony militia in arms, upon whom they fired without any provocation and killed six men and wounded four others. By an express from Boston, We find another brigade is now on its march from Boston, supposed to consist of a thousand men. The bearer of this message, Trilbisset, is charged to alarm the country, quite to Connecticut. That means all the way to Connecticut. And all the persons are desired to furnish him with fresh horses, as they may be needed. I have spoken with several 
who have seen the dead and wounded. This message is going to go to Connecticut and elsewhere and bring a force that will be the force that will fight Bunker Hill. The message actually reaches Williamsburg in 10 days and London in two weeks. These battles are legendary. We know that. John Adams says the die was cast, the Rubicon crossed. There was no turning back after the King's Men and Colonial Mission militia had duked it out and scored a lot of casualties in doing so in Lexington and Concord. One of the things that the Americans are going to do much better at several points in this war, particularly with Concord that makes it so important, is the public relations war. And the American viewpoint of what happened in Lexington and Concord, including who fired first, the British, is going to reach London two weeks earlier than the British account from Lieutenant Colonel Smith. And that is because the Americans immediately get uh, all of these depositions from various colonials as to what happened, put it together. They even get a few captured British soldiers who give their account, put it all together and get it on a packet on a very fast schooner that they, they have that can get to London faster than the warships. To think about how important Lexington and Concord is, think about this. There are a group of pioneers way in the countryside who hear about these events and decide then to name the area after where the first resistance to Britain was made. And the town of Lexington, Kentucky is born. Towns in Pennsylvania, Illinois, Arkansas, Indiana, and eventually California named Concord would follow. Thanks for listening.